so my wife tells me that I, I am uh, compelled to explain my face to you this morning in case uh, you missed my little Facebook post and you wonder why I've got this uh, Frankenstein look going on right here. Um, on Monday, I was working out and I, I passed out and crashed into uh, a machine and hit my head. Uh, spent a little time in the ER. Doctor told me I was just dehydrated. But the real reason was uh, I was trying to keep up with John Webb and Mike Gentry in our workout. And uh, I just wasn't able to. And so uh, I've given that up. Actually, Julie this morning, in a very uh, kind and motherly way, r- reminded me that I'm not as young as I used to be and I need to stop. <laughs> she said, that's why you passed out because you were uh, working out too hard. And I said, I don't think I believe that. <laughs> so... Uh, anyway, I'm fine, all good, but if I get a little wobbly, maybe one of you can just jump up and finish today. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. I want to start with a story, though. William Randolph Hearst uh, was a uh, publisher. He made millions of dollars. He lived late uh, mid-1800s into the mid-1900s. And one of the ways that he liked to invest his millions of dollars was in collecting artwork. And he had thousands of pieces of, of art. And one day he was reading a description of a couple of pieces that he thought, and I just have to have those for myself. So he sent his agent in search of these particular pieces of art all around the world. And several months later, the agent came back and he said, I've, I've located uh, the artwork that you're interested in. It's in your warehouse. <laughs> he already owned it. He, he already possessed these precious works of art. And, you know, I hear that story and I think, man, I can't, even, I can't even imagine having money like that, right? I can't even imagine having a warehouse that large that I, I would lose things that are precious to me. Actually, I can't even imagine having a warehouse. But I, 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 I hear that story and I think, you know, that's a great spiritual analogy because I think so often that is exactly what happens to us as followers of Jesus Christ. We possess immeasurable riches in Jesus, but we live as if we have nothing spiritually. We allow life circumstances to, to beat us down. We become discouraged and depressed and we feel worthless and we feel hopeless and we feel powerless when in fact, as Paul has said in Ephesians 1, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that heaven has to offer in Jesus Christ. Or as Peter said in his first letter, seeing that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We are rich. And so Paul has just told us about all of these riches in the first 14 verses. And then in verses 15 through 23, he turns and he begins to pray for the church, that the church, that we would experience what we already possess in Jesus Christ. So I want us to read the first part of this prayer, beginning in verse 15. Again, Paul says, For this reason, I too... Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So notice how Paul begins this paragraph. He says, for this reason. For what reason? For the reason that you already possess all the riches in Jesus Christ, I'm going to pray for you that you would experience all of the riches that you have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would go into ever greater depths of your experience of what you have in Jesus. Now, one of my favorite book series is children's series, Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I suspect that many of you have read that. If not, you're exposed to it because they made movies out of it. But if you haven't read it, 
start today. Like, go and buy that series. You, you'll fly through it. It's supposedly written for children, but it's, it's a metaphor of the spiritual life. And in the last book in the series, it's called The, the Last Battle, toward the very end of The Last Battle, the characters go into Narnia which is a metaphor for heaven. And as they enter into Narnia, they are encouraged, go further up, go further in, keep moving. In other words, what C.S. Lewis, the author, is saying is, even in heaven, there will always be more of Jesus that you can experience, more of heaven that you can absorb, which, you know, we don't normally think of heaven in those terms. We think of it in static terms. But in heaven, we are entering into the unlimited personality of God. We're entering into a relationship with with an absolutely infinite God, which means that forever we will be learning and growing. And honestly, when I think about heaven, that's the thing that is absolutely most exciting to me, is we will always be stretched. Every day we will wake up and we will think, what's more? What, what else can I go after? And our minds will just be completely blown away as God reveals more of himself to us forever. Well, that's true today followers of Jesus. But that's true, that's true of us today. There's always more that we can learn, right? The moment that you trust Christ, you enter into a relationship with God, and then the relationship begins to grow, in a sense, to the degree that you're hungry. And you say, I just have to have more. And what Paul is praying here for the church is this. You possess all these riches. Let's dig into them. And let's go deeper. Let's go further. Let's go higher up into our relationship and our understanding of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul makes an assumption, though, as he begins. And the assumption is this, that you've already begun that relationship. Right? He starts out in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, to the saints and the faithful brethren who are at Ephesus. He, he helped plant this church. He established this church. He knew these people personally. And so as he writes to them, he writes with this basic assumption that they have already entered into this relationship. So notice what he says in verse 18. My translation says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, but... What it really says is this, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. Okay, so you should scratch that out and write in the margins really clearly. What it says is this, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. That is, you were in darkness. You're born in darkness. But the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, that veil is taken away and you enter into understanding or illumination of who God truly is in Jesus Christ. You are illuminated. Paul actually uses the same kind of metaphor in 2 Corinthians where he says, the God who said light shall shine out of darkness, which is an allusion to creation. There's nothing but just God and then boom, God created. God created. Light shall shine out of darkness darkness. That's creation. The one who who did that, who created, is the one also who who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is, the one who created is the one who recreates and brings about life in you. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what what it really looks like to press further on. But maybe this morning... You haven't started that relationship yet. And and the most important thing for you to understand in this moment is that what God is calling you to do is to believe in Jesus. And maybe you've been exposed to Christianity and the church and, and all kinds of duties that surround that and all kinds of rules and regulations. But what you've never understood is that having a relationship with God is first and foremost and fundamentally a gift that God gives you through Jesus. And what you need to do this morning is simply to say, God, thank you. I'm not, I'm not offering you anything, but I'm reaching out and saying thank you. Thank you that Jesus did pay the debt of my sins and, and I receive, I receive that gift. 
And I want to encourage you, if you've never had that moment, right? You know lots about Christianity. You've been around it, or maybe you've even been in the church, or maybe you even served in the church, and you sang in a choir, and you got baptized, but you never had that moment for yourself. You said, I, I believe. That belongs to me. Well, the moment that happens, well, light shines in darkness, and now you've begun a relationship that can just grow and grow and grow and grow, actually forever, right? All the way into eternity. Those are the riches that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Now, before we go further, let me give you just a little bit of background. Because I know uh, last week, uh, weather and students coming into town, that kind of thing, probably some of you weren't, weren't here with us. And in case you missed it, we're studying Ephesians. <laughs> studying Ephesians this semester. So let me, let me back up a little bit, just refresh our background. Uh, Ephesus, uh, one of the prison epistles that Paul wrote during his first imprisonment, he wrote to uh, a church in Ephesus and Philippi and Colossus. And then Colossia, and then also a, a personal letter to Philemon. Uh, the church in Ephesus happened to be um, one of the churches where he'd spent many years, like two to three years, because it was a strategic city. It was a really important city. Third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a crossroads for commerce. It was said that all roads lead from Ephesus, right? It was a port city, so ships would come in, and they would drop off their goods, and they would send them through to Asia, or Asian goods would come in and they would be brought into Europe. So it was a really, really important city. It was also a very immoral city, and it was a very idolatrous city. And in a sense, worst of all for Christians, it was a center place for the worship of the emperor. Christians just couldn't do that, even though it was mandatory. And the result was, throughout the years, waves of persecution would come over the church in Ephesus. And they had good reason, in a sense, to become really discouraged and to feel powerless and to feel hopeless because there were this, this tiny fraction of a minority in this, this pagan, immoral city. And, and increasingly, the culture was moving away from the values of Jesus Christ. And, and they were suffering. Literally, they were suffering. And Paul writes to them, and he doesn't, in a sense, ignore the fact that they're suffering and persecuted. But he said, you have, really, you have great reason to have hope. Even in the midst of all of this, you have great reason to have hope because you have, have riches in Jesus Christ. Okay? And there are three things that Paul is going to say to them that I think translate to us as a church living in the culture we have today. The first is this. When we feel weary, we have hope. We might not feel hopeful, but Paul says you have hope. Hey, let's read again chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, I pray this. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the true knowledge of him, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, in 2016, I read recently, there were 16 million adults that experienced severe depression. Prevalence of depression is actually higher among adults 18 to 22. It's everywhere. We live in a culture that um, feels really hopeless often. Well, why is that? The, the future is a frightening thing in our culture today. That's, that's why, you know, from time to time, I just delete all of my news apps. I'm like, I just can't, I can't engage in that right now because it's, it's just really, really bad news all over the world, here locally and, and throughout the state, nations and Man, I just, I just need to pause on that because I feel powerless and hopeless 
The future is really uncertain and I can't control it. And then I think about the past and there are regrets that I can't change. So I've got an unchanging past with regrets. I've got a future that I can't control. And, and that creates a culture for so many millions of people who have severe depression and so many more who have uh, just despair. despair. But Paul says, not making light or pretending it's not true that there are circumstances that feel very crushing, but we have greater reason, in fact, to have hope. Now, let me make a distinction here. Uh, in biblical terms, uh, hope is really different from the way that we use hope in normal English conversation, right? In English conversation, we say hope, and we mean bas- basically like a wish, right? Wishful thinking. We had friends and family who were in Houston, and they were hoping that the hurricane would just stop and move and turn around and go back in the ocean, right? That, that, that's just, it was wishful thinking. You look at the radar, here it comes. There's wishful thinking. Or, you know, uh, on a more trivial note, people say, I hope I win the lottery. Yeah. I always tell my kids, well, you can't win if you don't play. It's like, oh, okay, so if I buy a ticket, I have hope. I go, no, it's hopeless. Don't, it, it, it's, it's foolish. It's stupid. Don't do that. It's hopeless. It's just wishful thinking. That's earthly hope. But biblical hope is confident expectation because it's based upon a promise from a God who keeps his promises. So keep your place here in Ephesians. Mark your place and turn back to Romans chapter 8, verse 24. Romans 8, verse 24. Paul says, In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? He possesses it then. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. What is he talking about? He's talking about the promise. The promise that, in fact, at the cross, our debt of sin is removed, and consequently we have life that lasts forever. We have hope because we have a promise. We have an expectation of something that is so much greater in the future. So even when we're in the midst of sufferings here, we know we have that. That's, in a sense, biblical hope. Let me illustrate. Uh, when I was in college and then into seminary, my dad and I used to go backpacking uh, southern Colorado, Wimenooch Wilderness area. We, we loved it. We would go every year. And uh, after we'd been out on the trail for several days, there just came a point in time where we're like, you know, we're just, we're just really sick of ramen and oatmeal. And, you know, it's, it's time to turn around. And we knew that at the end of the trail there in a little town called Creed, Colorado, there was the Mucker's Bucket. And we could get this really big, thick, greasy hamburger with greasy French fries. And, you know, after having all this ramen, we're like, that's just awesome. And so sometimes we would be many, many, many miles from the trailhead. But it didn't matter because once that, once that vision of hope, like, got lodged in our brains, we were going out. It didn't matter how sore our backs were, how sore our feet were. I mean, we would just trudge out and drag ourselves nasty and stinky into that restaurant and eat a great big juicy burger and greasy salty french fries. It was hope, right? There was hope. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about that confident expectation even in the midst of really difficult suffering. Paul wrote another letter to a church in Thessalonica. And these people were suffering because they were grieving the loss of their loved loved ones and they were living in fear because their loved ones had had gone and they didn't really have a great understanding of the nature of of heaven. And Paul writes to them and he says, don't you understand that, that we grieve, but we don't grieve like the world grieves because the world grieves without hope. Is there life after death? I don't know, wishful thinking. 
Is there anything, or are we just gone and literally? I don't know. It's wishful thinking. Paul says, no. But for us, we have confident expectation because Jesus has declared that he will return and he will grab his people and he will bring them to himself because he loves his family. So Paul says, we grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. We grieve with hope. We don't pretend there's no pain in the world, but we know that the hope we have transcends that pain. That is hope. Now, turn back to Ephesians with me, chapter 1. Verse 18, Paul says, Since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Paul says the source of hope is God's calling, that is his summons. He summoned you out of darkness into light. He summoned you out of death into life. He summoned you out of a family of humanity that's, that's broken and getting more broken, broken into his family of security and hope and confidence and joy. Okay, that, that calling changed your identity and consequently it changed your entire destiny. Right? It changed everything about you. That's what gives you hope. Now, do I have any multitaskers in the room? People, go ahead, raise your hand. You can do, like you're doing lots of things all at once, right? Okay, uh, I, don't, I don't really get you. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a completely single tasker kind of guy. We got married and Tristy realized it's just, you go one drawer open at a time. You know, this, is how I, this is how I live my life, right? Just one drawer at a time, single task, really dialed in, focused. When I was at a and I would go to Sterling C. Evans Library, go to the very top floor, find a cubicle, no group study, no music, boom. Right, and some of you are going, <laughs> you would not have been my friend. Hey, I say the same thing about you. You're not my friend either. It's, you know, I, I'm just dialed in. Don't distract me. Don't distract me. But when we're friends, we're friends. When I'm on this mode, studying, I'm studying. Right? I, I, I don't really understand it. However, uh, you know, I will say this. Uh, 22 years ago, I would have said, all of you are crazy. You're just you're freaks. You, you're delusional. You think you can multitask. And then I met my wife. She can have trains running on seven tracks. At once. I mean, it's really stunning. And I began to open my mind. I became more open-minded. And I actually have discovered that there's a lot of scientific literature that confirms you can multitask. You can. You can wash dishes and listen to music. You can study and watch television. Not well, but you can do it, right? You can text and drive. Not legally. And not well. But you can. You can do multiple things at once. But what the literature also confirms is you can't actually focus your attention on more than one thing at a time. So, my question for you is this. When you are in the midst of suffering and you feel discouraged, you feel hopeless, you feel weary, do you own this truth enough that you can say, okay, this is what I can focus on. I I own this so much that I can drill down deep and focus on this truth. And this truth alone The Apostle Peter wrote, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, here's how you get through all of this. Focus on this truth. You have hope. When you're weary, you have hope. When we feel worthless, we have value. Verse 18, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. 
so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Uh, Whose inheritance? Whose inheritance? It's his inheritance. Right? Not our inheritance, he says his inheritance. And what, what, is, what is God's inheritance, if you were here last week? What's God's? There you go. We're God's inheritance. We're what's precious to God. Look at chapter 1 and verse 11. It says, also we have obtained an inheritance. And what we talked about last week is actually the best translation for that is we have become an inheritance. We've become an inheritance. Are we given an inheritance? Yeah, we, we have eternity. We have eternal life. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have all kinds of riches in Christ. We have an inheritance, but also we are an inheritance. So, as he says in verse 14, the Spirit is given as the down payment of our inheritance, what we receive, with a view to the redemption of God's possession, that is, his inheritance. Whose inheritance? Well, God's inheritance is what he's talking about here in verse 18. Now, Peter actually picked up the same theme from the book of Deuteronomy, And he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You belong to God. You're God's family. You are valuable because God says you're valuable. You're valuable because God declares that you are valuable to him. Okay, let me me illustrate. Um, About six weeks ago, I, I bought a Jeep. And I just want you all to share in my joy of having a Jeep, because I always wanted a Jeep my whole, my whole life. And um, I got on Craigslist, and uh, Blake Jennings, he's just like master of Craigslist. He was all over. He's sending me, you know, 17 listings each day of different Jeeps, and, and then I found one, and I knew it was a sign, because it was maroon. <laughs> Although Luann said, well, when the sunlight's really, really bright, it looks a little more brown, and I said, no, but in the shade, it's maroon. <laughs> this is from God. And, um, <laughs> never mind. Um, I won't go on that tangent. Uh, so I, I, I purchased Jeep super happy, but then I had to sell my truck. I can't, I didn't, I couldn't have two things. So I'm sitting on Craigslist. I'm entering in all of the information and my kids come in and they go, what's, what's your Jeep worth, dad? And I said, well, in my mind, it's worth a lot. Right. And I checked Kelly Blue Book, and I check Carfax, and I know it's really clean, and it has low mileage, and so in my mind, my Jeep uh, is worth quite a bit, but I said, actually, the answer is quite easy to give you. My Jeep is worth whatever I can get someone to pay me. That's the value of my Jeep in real terms. So your value is, is what someone was willing to pay for you to get you. That's your value. First Peter chapter 1, Peter says, you were not purchased with just stupid, foolish, perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were purchased with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. God said, you know how valuable you are? You are so valuable that I will take what's most valuable to me, that is the life of my son, and I will give it so that I can buy you for myself. So, even when you feel worthless, fact, you have value. You have immeasurable value because you are worth the life of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now, earlier this week on Friday, Tristy and I went out to lunch at uh, Ninfa's, and as we're sitting there, in walked this really, really young couple, and the wife was obviously pregnant. 
with uh, their first child, right? No other kids in tow, and they're really, really young. We're like, okay, this is first baby. As we're sitting there and watch them come in, and my wife always says, don't stare. I'm just, I'm thinking, right? So I kind of zone out. And I was just imagining, what would it be like if I walked over and I said, do you know how much that kid's going to cost you? (laughs) I didn't, I didn't. But I confess, those kind of scenarios just kind of run through my mind. I was thinking, oh, that would be an interesting conversation. No, I would enjoy it. They wouldn't enjoy it, so I won't have it. But you know what that kid's going to cost you? Right, so uh, I'm sure you're curious now. Do you know what that kid's going to cost them? Okay, my date is just a little bit old, right? 2015, child born in 2015 would cost the parents, on average in the U.S., $233,000 to raise. Right, if you're wealthy, you would spend more. If you're not as wealthy or poor, you wouldn't spend quite as much. But on average, raise a child in the U.S., 233000 That's just through age 17. It doesn't include college expenses or anything like that. Right? But I've never known a parent who ahead of time said, hmm, can we really afford this? No, they just, they don't. And, and I've never known a parent who kept a running tab and presented a bill. Right? You're, you're 17 now. Here you go. Do well in school and get a great job because you owe me $233,000. I was, I was thinking about the illustration. I thought, you know, maybe there's someone out here and your parent did that to you. I'm sorry. Um, just know that's not what God is like, right? That's not what God is like. Right? He, instead, what he does is he, he takes what's most precious to him. He, he uses that, the life of his son, to buy you for himself. And then he never charges you anything. He just says, just say thanks and accept it as a gift. Right? When you feel worthless, fact, you have immeasurable value in the eyes of God. When we feel weak, we have power. Read with me verse 19. Paul says, I also pray that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Pray that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power. And here, Paul uses the word surpassing means, means to throw beyond. Right? You, want to know, you want to know if God has power? He says, go long. Right? Go long. Go deep. And then just keep running. And then I'm just going to throw it way over your head. Because that's how much power. And then he uses four words to just heap uh, upon us the, the level of the power that he has. And he proves, he says, how do we know? How do we know we have power like that? Paul's just going to say, this is the longest section of the explanation of my prayer. Let me show you why you have such great power. A few years ago, I remember reading a a, a book. It was a parenting book. And the guy wrote about uh, a comment that his dad would make to him almost every day. Almost every day, his dad would say, you have what it takes. Oh man, I, I love that. Whatever God has designed you for and called you to, you have what it takes. You have power that is surpassing. How do we know that? Paul gives us several reasons. He says, these are in accordance with or as displayed in the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So first, the resurrection. What's the greatest and most powerful enemy that we face? Well, it's death. So what's the greatest demonstration of power? It's resurrection. And we're told Jesus is just the first fruits. He's just the first one. He's the proof that God has the power over sin and death. Right? So he raised the son from the dead. He brought it about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And then he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well, why did he say, son, have a seat? Well, because the son's work was done. Completed. Finished. Son, have a seat. And now let's spend our time in intercession or conversation, Father, Son, and Spirit, about how we empower 
our family. He was seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Remember another part of the background of the church in Ephesus is that it was a a city that was devoted to magic and the occult and demonic activity. And one of the ways that the people who believed in demonic activity would try to exert that authority is that they would name names over their enemies. They would declare these names. And so Paul is specifically making the point here. There's actually one name that's above every single name that's ever been named in heaven and on earth, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, right? Paul loves these run-on sentences, and that is the name of Jesus. Do you have power? You have power beyond anything that's created. Because, he finishes with this, he put all things in subjection under his feet, and then he gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him, that is Jesus, who fills all in all. So there is nothing more powerful than the body of Christ, than the church. Nothing. There's nothing more powerful than the body of Christ. Why is this important? As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to do, his good pleasure. Right? The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that's working in you to change your desires from things that are destructive for you to things that are life-giving for you. It is that same power that raised Jesus from the dead that's working in you to cause you to have the power to choose, to say no to things that destroy you and say yes to things that give you life. And this is what God is doing in you individually, but also particularly in us as a church as we interact and relate to one another as the body of Christ. So notice the end of Paul's exhortation, chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Paul says, look, you, you, don't, even, you don't even understand hardly at all the riches that you have in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would, you would live rich, that you would experience that, that you would be completely and utterly discontent with where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, no, I've got to go further in. I've got to go further up. I've got to know more. I, there is more, and I have to have it. I've got to go after it. There is greater power in my own personal life. There is greater power in my life, as my, in my testimony in the community, and in my relationships that need reconciliation. There is power beyond all that we ask or even imagine Jesus says, go long. Go long. And that's what Paul prays for the church. So as we close, what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to spend a little bit of time uh, in prayer. And I'm going to give you a few things to pray for. First, I want us to pray for the victims of Hurricane Harvey that they would experience the love of Jesus Christ. They'd experience his riches and his grace. That the church would rise up Uh, in Houston and in the surrounding areas here in Texas, that we would be the church for the lost in particular. So let's pray that that happens. Let's pray for international students. You know, one of the things that I do on Saturdays is I walk our building. I walk around our building. Sometimes I walk in the neighborhoods and I pray. So last night I was walking and I ran into uh, three international students who were coming across to the park. Uh, They were all from Hyderabad, India, a city of 7.5 million I said, I'm guessing that you didn't know one another before you got here. (laughs) I said, no. They didn't know anyone. They didn't know anyone. 
Mexico. New country, new culture, new food. Uh, they, know, they know the language, but man, everything else is different. They know no one. So I, I want us to pray for those who are in our midst, who may not know Jesus, that they would experience uh, the riches of Christ through us. Pray for our community and our campus that we would see, uh, as we sang first, that the Spirit would break out, right? The Spirit would break through. As it says in, you know, in the book of Acts, the Spirit came upon people. And what did that do? Well, that gave them courage to go share the gospel. So let's pray that that happens, community and campus. And then let's pray for, pray for the church in Bryan College Station. We've been really seeing some, some beautiful unity begin to happen in the church. Let's pray for the church, capital C, all of us who are believers, that we would really be the aroma of Christ as we become unified with one another. Okay, so let's take a few moments and pray. And as we're praying, if I could ask the men to go back and get us ready for communion. Jesus took bread in front of his disciples and he broke it and he said, I want you to take bread. I want you to break it together with one another as a reminder of my sacrifice and my suffering on your behalf. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took a cup and he said, I want you to, to drink a cup as well. The cup will remind you of my blood that was poured out for you for forgiveness of sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for the power that's demonstrated, not just in the death, but especially in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the power that works in us. And because of that, you have poured out your riches through Jesus upon us. Father, I pray that we would live in that wealth live in confidence and joy, even in the midst of challenges and sufferings. Father, make us people who are confident in what we possess in Jesus. Father, we thank you for giving us moments like this where we can just remember all of the rich blessings that we have from Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. We turn our hearts again to praising him and thanking him. Father, I pray this week we would live in that wealth that we have in Christ and that you would, as a result, make us people who are also generous. We're just overflowing with the blessings we've received and we want to give to others. Father, in, in, in ways that are spiritual in the conversations that we have, but also as we serve, we give tangibly. Father, let us be the blessing that we have also received. In Christ we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.